I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by Simprove. Hello, and thank you so much for tuning into that Gabby Roslin podcast. I was overjoyed. I cannot begin to tell you how thrilled, in fact, I was to chat to Sir Michael Palin. He has such a wonderful outlook on life. We, of course, chatted about Monty Python and their reunion, the famous fish-slapping dance, of course, and the beauty of slapstick comedy with its worldwide appeal. He tells the amazing story about taking his 80-year-old mother on Concord to New York and how she was then asked to perform on Saturday Night Live with him. Michael talks about being starstruck when he met his heroes Spike Milligan and Johnny Cash, who were fans of his in the end. Also, his dear friendship and admiration for Sir David Attenborough. And Michael talks very passionately about saving our planet. Enjoy. Hello, Gabby. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. All the better for speaking to you and all the better for introducing my 14-year-old to the fish slapping scene. She'd never seen it before, I'm ashamed to say. (laughs) A bit old for it, really. You should start them at about four. (laughs) It's completely our sense of humour. And I said to her, I can't believe, because they've they've watched Life of Brian and they've watched Fish Called Wanda, but I can't believe I'd never shown it. And she was in hysterics. She kept saying, do it again, play it again, play it again. (laughs) And she kept saying, but that's the sort of thing that makes you laugh, Mum. I went, yes, yes. That's good to know. (laughs) It's just such a joy. Do you mind that people bring all of those beautiful, funny, wonderful moments up again and again? No, not at all. I mean, it's it's great to hear people's appreciation. I mean, that's what I do and have done for most of my life, is, is entertain and you've got to have a feedback. And there's an audience out there all the time. Um, and I used to complain a bit sometimes because... The press were very intrusive and wanted to know this and that. And, uh, you know, the actual time spent answering questions from the press was taken away from the work I was doing. And I I would occasionally moan about that. And my wife would say, well, that's, you know, don't do 10 hours of travel programmes in a year, you know, because if you don't want to be bothered, just (laughs) shut up. And um, (laughs) unfortunately, I can't shut up. I mean, I I do like to be talking to somebody out there. So to get a reaction from somebody who is out there is what it's all about, and that's fine. Um, good or bad, really, you learn from both. Do you know you're quite right about those 
those press stuff. Just, just, I think your wife's right. You know, sometimes you just have to close the door on all of those. But, but you loved entertaining for, from the age of 10. I was watching your documentary and you were saying that you used to go into a cupboard and entertain the kids at school. Oh, yeah. It was slightly bigger than a cupboard. I did have an audience of about 12. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was, it was my, my prep school and I, I had a sort of a ability to just make up characters and invent characters and sometimes use the teachers we had in the school as the basis of characters and transport them to another sort of um, situation. And I remember 1953 very well because it was the royal, it was a coronation. Uh, many things happened. Everest was climbed, but it was a coronation which everyone was talking about. And I, I just used to ad lib during the break um, the the events of the coronation, which were usually very childish and silly and ended up with things like, you know, the Duke of Edinburgh being caught short um, in the Abbey and all that and <laughs> a toilet roll trailing from his pocket and all that sort of stuff. It was very, it doesn't stand up terribly well nowadays. But yeah, they were quite entranced, my, my little audience. I mean, there were others out there being hearty and doing what boys do in the break, which is bash each other up. But there's a kind of, I like to think, a rather more um, intellectual group who wanted to hear about the Duke of Edinburgh being caught short at the coronation. But there's <laughs> nothing better than making people laugh. And I just, in, in, I know I'm very lucky to have interviewed you before and we worked together on the Millennium Broadcast. But, exactly. But I remember you saying to me that you love hearing people laughing with you and at you yes not at me so much um <laughs> with you but with, with, you. with me certainly it's <laughs> as someone said you know when you see someone slip over on a banana skin that's funny when you slip over on a banana skin it's not funny <laughs> so there is a difference between laughing with and at but I'm, I'm never particularly good at jokes per se because i can't remember jokes and the wonderful Barry Cryer, who I've known for a long, long time, rings me up, um, you know, quite often, actually. Barry is a great believer in the telephone um, rather than email and all that. And he rings, finds out what I'm doing and all that and says, well, just before I go, um, three people go into a bar or something. And he goes into a wonderful joke, which I have <laughs> to try and write down as quickly as I can. And then he tells another one. And then there's a third one. I'm scribbling down. And, you know, he, he rings off and I look at this bit of paper. It has the most extraordinary, you know, shambolic sort of unconnected uh, words on it, like sort of parrot, um, nun, uh, summertime. I think, where, <laughs> why, why couldn't I get the joke out of this? So I'm not good at telling jokes that that much, but I do love comic situations and I do love to sort of press the button that makes people laugh um you know just by putting people in, in different strange situations like the fish slapping dance which is extremely silly but everybody knows about the sort of um folk dances and all that that we have to we have to know about and we occasionally used to see our grandparents doing so there is a context but it's putting something quite different into that context it's so funny that you just said that his jokes, you wrote down parrot and you wrote down none. And I can see something coming. I can see a whole, I can see a whole scenario coming. That would be the, the parrot and the nun scene together. Because well, that's yes. what you put I mean, together brilliantly. Pa yeah, parrots and, and nuns um, do seem to occur a lot in comedy. 
<laughs> I, I don't know why that should be. It's also, I remember us in Python wondering why fish were so funny, and they just were. But not all fish were funny. Um, <laughs> halibut was funnier than a haddock or something <laughs> for some reason. I don't know why. Uh, trout was quite funny, but basically it was um, halibut. Um, we had, did a sketch about someone trying to get a, a license for their pet fish, Eric. He's an halibut, you know, and they had to get a license for a halibut. So that's, that's one thing that's funny. Why is it funny? I don't know. It's a bit like... Um, why are certain places like Penge funny and uh, Camden aren't funny? You know, it's, it's, you just don't know. But, but all you know is that people do respond. And you learn that from, from improvising stories, which I used to do, um, listening to jokes, just, just seeing what, what it is that uh, make people start to laugh. It's, it's always fascinated me. Because I think if someone's laughing with you, then... It's a rather, you're, you're in a happier place than you are if someone's scowling or not talking. They're a great icebreaker, humour. I completely agree with you. And uh, one of the things that we always ask everybody on this podcast, because I, I think that um, laughter is the best medicine. I really, really do. I think kindness is the key and laughter is the best medicine. And whenever I ask anybody what makes them laugh, they'll say Python or Seinfeld or anything. And then suddenly they'll say, but you know what I really like is if somebody falls over or walks into a tree yeah. or slapstick. We love slapstick. Yes, we do. And, and slapstick, of course, is, is absolutely universal. Uh, I, I don't know of anywhere in the world where you can't get a laugh from, you know, kicking a football with a group of children. They're missing the ball completely and falling on your bum. <laughs> and they love that. It's just so funny because there it is. It's adult or somebody doing what they all do at some point. Make a fool of yourself. But it, it has to be has to be something that happens to somebody else. Yes. But I, I can remember uh, actually with fish slapping dance, which is a, a bit of slapstick, really, with a yeah. with a sort of serious ritual around it. You know, John is very serious when he aims the fish at me, um, and um, uh, yet when I was in North Korea recently making a documentary. My director had bought various Python clips, which he thought he might at some point be able to show to people. We did at one point show my guide, uh, So Young, fish slapping dance. And she, she didn't know anything much about me and what I did at home. They knew nothing of the context. They knew very little about the Western world, about England, about television or anything like that. They lived in their own little bubble. And we just played this, wondering what her reaction would be. And she just broke up when I hit the, when John hit me with the fish and I fell into the water. And you realize this is a completely universal thing. And then she said to me, which is rather sweet, she said, Oh, so this is what you do. And I said, Well, no, I don't, I don't do it all the time. No, I, that was about 50 years ago. But, and then she said, uh, The fish, she looked very concerned. She said, The fish, was it alive? I said, No, no, no. It wasn't. But I was, and she. But but she laughed at that because it's a piece of slapstick, and it's because it's a great relief to people to see pretension, order, um, you you know, power uh, debunked, which is part of what it's all about. Oh, completely. There's a wonderful quote um, that you said: "It's important to always keep a sense of wonder." Yes, I say it quite a lot, actually. Um, I think it's one of the most important motivations for me 
in life generally. Um, I, I do think there's sort of, I, I can't, I don't like the attitude which is, well, I've seen it all before, well, you know, oh, that's boring. You know, the kind of attitude you had when you were 12 or 13 or 14, which my grandchildren have slightly. In fact, the other day, it was rather wonderful because Archie, who's about 14, he's always bored. <laughs> and I finally came to the house one day and he was sitting, he had a, a rocking chair over his head and was kind of lying on the floor. I said, Archie, are you all right? What, do, what, what are you doing? He said, I'm waiting to be bored. And uh, <laughs> I, I love the idea of waiting to be bored. <laughs> That's so 14. But yes, exactly. And I went through that and days seemed to pass with nothing happening at all. And gradually I realised that it's up to you to find something out of your to get something out of the, the, the days and the life you're leading. And as you get older, you need it more and more, I suppose. And I have always felt that it's... Um, I've, I've responded, I, 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 I respond to things very warmly, usually whether it's a view, a bit of music, um, um, uh, a painting, a friend ringing up. Uh, it, to me, that's always there's a potential for something wonderful to happen <laughs> every day, and it's not. I, I don't. I really don't like the attitude that says, "Well, it won't happen here." You just, you know, it's like people who say, "Oh, you can't be in London over the winter; just miserable." Well, it isn't miserable. It's actually wonderful, even when the snow's driving across Hampstead Heath or something like that, straight in your face, something like that. There's something rather. Wonderful, because you know in three months' time the sun's going to be on your face. It's little moments like that that I think um, wonder is the only way of describing it, really. Don't ever be blasé about the world. Uh, however difficult things might be, there's always something wonderful there. How wonderful. Were you always like that? Did you, did you always look at life like that, even when you were a child? Yeah, uh, yes, yes. I was very... Um, I remember I enjoyed seeing things and, and, and feeling and, and touching and, and getting to grips with something. So at school, geography I loved because it got you out of the school and it took you up some valleys outside Sheffield or something to see how those valleys were, were forged and how they were created and how they started, the steel business began from the streams that came down there. Um, I enjoyed that much more than something theoretical like maths or all the you know, the, 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 the science stuff, which I never was very good at. You just had to sit at a desk and be told about it. And I've never been very good at being told about things. I have to see them and feel them and be aware of them and get a sense of them for myself. Um, and I think that goes way, way back. And I, I, I can remember when I was quite small, I always, um, you know, wanted to go where my parents would say <laughs> said stop I wanted to go a bit further than that yes. uh, like one of those children always wanted to see what was around the corner what's happening here what's happening there and I think that's um that was the start of it a curiosity that leads so perfectly into all your travels doesn't it I mean that you were like that as a child and then the sense of wonder and wanting when somebody says stop you want to go further and that's exactly what you did and I, I, I know that it's a very uh, sort of a well-known story that you got that phone call about do you want to go around the world in 80 days mm. but that changed your life so dramatically yes it was it was so unexpected because I, I was 45 or so when I first did the travel programs and and to some people, 45 is quite late in life. Your life is sort of, for a lot of people, 
things are set by then, things are determined. You're basically filling the days with things you know you can do and you're qualified to do and you don't really, um, beyond a certain age like, like that, ever get asked to do something totally um, uh, out of left field, something you've never done before. And I was lucky to be given that chance. Uh, I had, I mean, I, I had done a document, made a documentary, but it was only about a train going from London to Scotland. Um, and this was something altogether bigger scale, not just in where I was, where I was asked to go, which was around the world, but also in the presentation of it. I'd never done a documentary longer than about, you know, 50 minutes. And here we were going to be doing seven hours at least. And I had never done, uh, been in a situation where the camera would be there all the time. Well, whatever you're doing, really. I mean, apart from a few private moments. Um, but generally speaking, the idea was that the camera would follow you and you would have to talk to the camera and you'd have to be aware of the camera being there. So it was really like a, a, a sort of your, it was real life. Um, I was being asked to sort of portray my life on television. So a lot of things happened with Around the World in 80 Days. A lot of things that I, you know, I, I my instinct was, as you rightly say, to, to, to go with it because it was something that had uh, accorded with my childhood feelings and all that. But at the same time, it was something very new. And once I started it, quite um, quite frightening. <laughs> what, so you did have frightening moments then? Well, I've had, yes. I mean, the, the enormity of the project initially yeah, yeah. Um, kept me awake at nights. I just realised that uh, I had to have the energy and the stamina and the the curiosity to approach all sorts of situations. Um, sometimes when you least wanted to do it, when you're most tired, but because we happened to be in a certain place um, and a, a train was arriving at a certain time or whatever, you had to go and buy a ticket and there was a huge crowd at the ticket desk and it's somewhere in Egypt and you can't speak Arabic. Well, the director said, just go for it. And you don't, you know, you don't get any chance to have had a rest beforehand or think about what you're going to do. Um, you just go in there. And that requires quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit of energy and, and a lot of spark. You've got to have something behind there that says, I really, okay, it may be silly. It may be, may not work, but I want to do it. I want to have a go. And some, some days you felt like it and some days you didn't, to be honest. So I, I had to make sure that I had reserves there in order to, interact where where it was necessary i mean you met some extraordinary people and you went to some i, I mean completely incredible places and I, I for you to then to write about them afterwards did that help yeah. you process what you'd been through yes it did the writing was very important because um that was the other thing i really enjoyed when i was was growing up was reading and writing and particularly trying to create stories of my own. I mean, I could improvise the little comedy moments and all that. So I wanted to, you know, school essays, for instance, the more the more sort of ingenious I could be um, and the more creative with a story, the better. So you'd say, oh, the subject is my holiday. And I'd turn it into something where um, people got trapped in a cave and beheaded. <laughs> God knows what happened, you know. 
some other element. I thought I've got to, I've got to grab the audience here with a really good story. My own holiday would be extremely boring. So I was into creative writing <laughs> quite early on. But then descriptive writing, which is what you do when you're, you're traveling, and I take a lot of notes. And I realized that even though, you know, we've got seven hours of television, uh, considering the amount that we actually film and the amount that we see, that's a tiny sliver. And an awful lot of the material will be things that I saw and noted that the camera wasn't able to pick up. And so being able to write the book as well gave me a, a second chance to to um, show and, 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 and uh, you know, inform and describe things that had not been seen in the series. And I was very... I, I, I saw it as very important that the book should be in many ways different from the from the the actual series itself. Obviously, you were going to the same places, but what I noticed was um, sometimes things I couldn't put on screen and um, and vice versa. I, lo- I absolutely love the books. I mean, I remember I remember watching the shows, but but I remember reading the books because my parents bought the books and they said, right now now read the book. And I was like, oh, but I've watched it and 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 the yes. Dalai Lama and mm. and they said, no, now read the book. And I remember then getting completely lost in the book because it just took me it, sort of further into your head and and yes. but took me on that that journey with you and it was it just what it did i think for me is it opened my mind to to parts of the world i'd never been and always wanted to go and 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 the sense of wonder that you talk about it it brought that yeah. to all of us it really did i i think also the thing you you said there going into my mind a bit but it is the book was more personal in a sense it was very much well, the form was the sort of daily diary I kept when I was traveling. And very often that had to be scribbled late at night just before you were going to bed or up in the morning before you started filming. And little things that I wrote in those diaries were much more personal, my own personal view, than, than perhaps I would, that would come across in the, in the film version, in which I had a short time to say, what I was feeling and more time to say it through the books. So that did, yeah, that helped make the books different. The personal touch, I think. I loved them. With your parents, I've also um, read that, uh, I mean, I love, there's a wonderful clip of your mother coming on to Saturday Night Live oh, with yes. you. Oh, <laughs> that's joyful. Yes, well, that was that was one of those really high points of one's life. And, and again, I, as you can tell, I like surprises. I like things to just turn out and, and not to know exactly what's going to happen. And if ever there was a case of not knowing what was going to happen, it was taking my mother on her <laughs> 80th birthday to um, to New York. All sorts of things. First of all, I was appearing on Saturday Night Live and they had enough money to fly me over on Concord. Wow. So with my sister and my mum... We took we took Concord, and my mother had only flown once in her life before, which was on a rather slow plane from London to Paris. <gasps> so when we get to New York, I say, "Well, Mum, what do you think of that?" As we're getting off the plane, um, and she said, uh, "Yes, very nice, dear." And I said, three hours and ten minutes from London to New York." What about that? She says, well, what do we do now, dear? <laughs> and I, of course, I realised that she didn't know anything different. She hadn't only really flown once for 
for, as far as she was concerned, all planes flew from London to New York in three hours and ten minutes. Oh, that's wonderful. And then, of course, the, uh, well, I got in the hotel and my sister was there. I was going to take her around New York. So I wasn't abandoning her. But basically, I had to get on with the work, which was going to a, a read through, talking about what I might do as the um, as the opening monologue, which is a very important part of the guest's appearance on Saturday Night Live, as you know. And uh, I was talking about what's going on. I brought my mother over and Lorne Michaels, who was the producer, just thought this was wonderful. You brought your, your mother? First time in New York? Oh, yes. I said, first time in New York. Oh, that's wonderful. He said, would she, would she like to come to the show? And I said, well, yeah, she, I think she'd probably like to, but it's quite late at night, you know, and it's very noisy and all that. And um, I said, well, uh, you know, I'll ask her. And then as I was going out, Lorne said, by the way, you know, this opening monologue, would, would she like to be in the show? <laughs> and I said, she's 80 years old and you've got this hip show, you know, broadcast to 45 million people or across America. I said, she'll be really bewildered and they're just, you know, it's a nice idea, but uh, there's no chance. And I went back and I, I told her about it. I said, I'm doing this show and it's a huge audience right across America, mainly young college kids and all that. And the producer today asked if you would be if you'd like to come on to the show and, and do a part and I sort of laughed and said I said no I don't think you want to do that she said oh it sounds quite interesting dear <laughs> what do I have to do I said well I mean you know, I, well I could write you something oh, that'd be very nice dear yes I'll do that if you'd like me to <laughs> just as if she was talking about going down to the shops <laughs> and she ends up there with this manic world on the evening she has to go to rehearsal, and she's a she was a very little lady, um, and she just did, did it with such extraordinary calm composure that it was absolutely wonderful. It wasn't she was hogging the camera in any shape or form. In fact, she looked rather, rather sort of, you know, bemused as to why she was there, why she was doing anything. Of course, again, she didn't realise the profile of Saturday Night Live, the fact that she's on. She was having her dressing room was her dressing room had Eddie Murphy on the outside. Eddie wasn't on the show that week. <laughs> Uh, but they, they hadn't taken the name down, so it was just Eddie Murphy. And underneath it said Michael Palin's mother. Talk about surreal, but it really did happen. Oh, how glorious. Because I, I was going to, the reason I, I mentioned that is um, I've I've heard on the documentary and also reading about your father, just sort of the way his uh, reaction to to your idea of, of acting and, and being in this yes. world, that he was not so keen, I suppose is a polite way of putting it. Uh, no, he wasn't keen at all. Um, and I'm, I've tried to sort of work that out. I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. One is a really very negative way, which is that he, you know, he he um, he just had uh, a bias against theatre or entertainment when it was clear that it was one of the things I really was wanted to do. He very much wanted me, if you look at it in the negative way, to followed the pattern of his life and he was an export manager and all he wanted was for me to go away to the same public school that he'd been to and behave and certainly not get seduced into the decadent world of acting um, where you know I would obviously make no money actors never did this this was the gloomy view of it all the other side I think which I I've sort of thought about more recently is that my dad actually he I've 
he, he was quite a show-off himself, in a way. I've got some wonderful photos of him um, in um, in India, uh, all dressed up, some of them in drag, with his mates, doing funny poses and all that. It could be Python. And wow. um, I think that what happened to him, he, 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 the pictures of my father taken in the 1920s show a much more light-hearted guy who was very dapper. He, he dressed very smartly. Um, he was a very handsome, good-looking guy. And then all the, the later photos, the photos from the 40s onwards after I was born, um, it, it's different. It's middle age. Things obviously aren't. There are not so many smiles. There's none of the dressing up. There's none of the showing off. And I think that really you look at his life and he... He was um, married in 1930, um, having survived, obviously, the, the First World War. He wasn't in the army. Then they had a great... As uh, soon as they married, um, there was a depression. He was an engineer, couldn't find any work. Down in the south of England, went up to the north, ended up in Hull and Leeds and Sheffield. Uh, then there was the Second World War, and by the time that he and my mother came through that, they had very, very little money. And things were just not so, um, things were not going so well for anybody, but particularly for him. And the underlying thing, which I think is very, very important, which whatever way you look at my dad, was that he did have quite a bad stammer. And I think if you want to entertain or tell jokes, which I think he really wanted to do, I think he had a great sense of humour. It's very, very difficult if you had a stammer. And he never managed to deal with the stammer. Um, it was quite bad throughout my, my childhood. And I think this must have probably depressed him and, and made him frustrated and sometimes rather sort of curmudgeonly, I'm afraid. Um, so, it, as I say, that's a long-winded answer. But if you look at different sides of my dad, one, I feel sorry for him, and the other, I just feel, you know, why did he have that bias against um, against stage and all that? It didn't sort of count that as something in any way admirable. I think in my father's case, to be honest, a lot of it was that I wouldn't earn any money and he'd be um, on a very low salary, which he had. He'd be paying for me for the next 10 years after my education finished and that was all altogether too horrific. There's also another thing I'd like to ask you about, the note from Spike Milligan. Oh, yes. That you, you received a note and you said it's one of the most... That and being shot by Robert De Niro. Those two things next to each other just make me giggle. Um, <laughs> but, but the Spike Milligan note, what was that about? It was after one of the ripping yarns. I mean, I, I was, uh, have to say, I was a huge fan of Spike. He was probably the most, the strongest uh, comedy influence on me in my childhood. For Spike himself to send me a little note after the, I think maybe one of the ripping yards, I can't remember if it was Tompkinson, the first one, and just said, um, I, I, I can't remember, more please, Spike, and his wonderful writing and all that. Wow. Um, and, you yeah, that, that that made my day, week, year, really. That is fabulous. That is fabulous. When, when there's somebody that you hold in such high regard uh, applauds you, there is there's sort of no greater feeling. There is no greater feeling, uh, and it, it was it's one of those things in life where you suddenly find a connection which you thought would never ever ever be made. So the fact I actually not got, just got a note from Spike, but ended up being quite 
friendly with Spike and I used to see him quite a lot and, and you know, we say we hang out all the time, but I, I got to know him very well in all his various different moods. And the fact he'd give me a ring and I could ring him, that was extraordinary. And another another amazing one was, was um, one of my great heroes when I was young was Keith Miller, who was an Australian fast bowler um, in the Australian team of the 40s and early 50s. And he was very dashing and had very incredibly long hair, unlike a lot of the cricketers that had sort of wartime haircuts. He was very dashing and he didn't hang about. He just hit the ball very hard or he missed it and was out. But he tended to make, you know, some. he made a huge impression. Um, he, he, I think, is down as having hit the furthest six at Lord's right over the pavilion <laughs> in the 1948 test. And I just, I read, I read all I could about him when I was young, a 10 year old, just, oh, wow, what a dream. And I was at Lord's about 40 years later, invited to a box. I think it was Michael Parkinson's box, actually, something like that. And who should come in um, leaning on two sticks, but Keith Miller, you know, this this hero of mine from the past. Uh, He was very, he was was not very well then, but he had a terrific sparkle in his eye. That was what was so wonderful. Although he was on two sticks and a lot of people would just be looking at the ground and tottering, he was looking around trying to catch the waitress's eye and that sort of thing. I thought, yes, this is everything <laughs> I want. And I and and you know, instead of ignoring me, he just ignored everybody else and came up and said, Michael Palin, we love you. We love your shows, don't we, darling? Yeah, oh, we do. Oh, it's great to meet you and all that. Oh, that must have been incredible. <laughs> it did. Took the words oh, totally out of my mouth. And there was I saying, well, I think you meant everything to me when I was young and all that. I couldn't say any of that. I just mopped up. Oh, yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you. So there are, there are little moments like that when childhood, you suddenly meet your childhood heroes. I think probably happens very, very rarely to people. And I was very lucky because it happened two or three times. The third time being Johnny Cash. Oh, what happened with Johnny Cash? Tell me about that. Well, I was backstage at a chat show in America and the guests were there and it was quite a small green room we were in. And one of the guests, the last guest, I think, was um, Johnny Cash and the door opened and there's this huge man once again I felt I was right. He is a hero. He's, he's, he's a godlike figure. He's about 12 foot tall and he's wearing black and it's just wonderful. And I was kind of blah, 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 bubbling, burbling in the background. <laughs> and he, he again, he says quick hello to various people, comes right across to me, put his hand out and said, John Cash, big fan. And that was, that was <gasps> it. Four words <laughs> to be engraved on my uh, uh, my heart for my life. So that was that was it. <laughs> you know, John, oh. Cash, John Cash, a fan. It's like hearing that Elvis liked the Holy Grail, which apparently he did. So these, oh my word, <laughs> these are wondrous moments. <laughs> they really are. They're so special. Uh, if people say that to you, how does that make you feel? Because you've had those yes. moments with your heroes. How, how does it make you feel when you get people behaving like that towards you? Well, I still feel like the one who admires others. I feel like, you know, still the same relation to heroes, whoever they might be, David Attenborough or whatever. So I, I don't see myself suddenly as having changed places completely. And when people say to me, oh, you, we, we, we really love your work or we like everything you've done, I'm, I'm 
I'm very pleased and, and obviously really sort of delighted that, 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 you know, they feel the need to come up and say that. And most people say it very, they, they don't, they don't shout it or they don't sort of, they, they come up and they, they just, just very politely will say something. And I feel that's like me, you know, this would be me talking to you know, Spike or, or <clears throat> Johnny Cash or whatever. So I feel very much in their place, which I think is very important in life generally to have oh, that, yes. that empathy, not suddenly think that, you know, well, now I'm the one who's admired. This makes me better and different from anyone else. It doesn't really. I'd now love to tell you all about one of the sponsors of today's episode. It's Simprove. Simprove is something that I have been taking every single morning for a very long time. And personally, I find it incredible. It's a food supplement containing live and active bacteria to support gut health and a balanced microbiome. Its unique water-based formula means that it simply can travel straight to your gut to thrive and multiply. I know that sounds really complicated, but it's simple. It goes straight to your gut and it works. Now, it's a family-run brand that was established by an entrepreneur, ex-army turned farmer Barry Smith. It's UK-based, produced on a farm, nestled in the Surrey Hills. I've actually been to this farm. I've seen how it works and I've met Barry. He's great. They are fiercely proud of their heritage and their evidence-based product. Okay, so it's gluten-free, dairy-free, suitable for vegans and vegetarians. It's available as a subscription, which is what I do and what my husband does. Or you can start with their introductory 12-week program to see how it works for you. Now, the gut has a really strong connection to the brain. It's a two-way conversation. It goes on constantly. It is something that is so vitally important. And when you sort your gut out, I cannot begin to tell you how much better you feel. For more information, visit Simprove website. That's www.simprove, and you spell it S-Y-M-P-R-O-V-E.com. Or you can follow them on Instagram at Simprove Your Life. And if you'd like to get 15% off the 12 week program. This is for new customers only. It's Gabby15. G A B Y 1 5. I love the stuff. So this is me speaking from the heart, speaking from the gut. This is something I swear by. You mentioned um, David Attenborough there. So you recently did um, an interview with Sir David. Yeah. Uh, uh, that extraordinary uh, piece of work that he did for Netflix. Uh, I mean, yeah. just. Yes. His witness statement, as he calls it. Yes. Uh, and you're very passionate about, I know you're passionate about transport, you're passionate about the environment, you're passionate about this planet. But to be interviewing Sir David, I mean, the two of you together, it was couldn't be more perfect fit. Well, I, uh, again, I'm very, very fortunate. Um, farmers are very fortunate to have got to know David. I've always admired him. I mean, I watched him when he, when I was 10, I should think. Uh, or even younger on ZooQuest and things like that. And I've always felt there was a consistency there in his programmes. They were always delivered the information clearly. There was always a rather spectacular element to where he was going. And there was a quietly authoritative tone that he had. It wasn't sort of, look at me, aren't I wonderful? It was basically trying to interpret what he saw uh, for us, the viewer, and what I've always envied about David is is his ability to communicate, which is quite a, is quite extraordinary at any level. And I, I, I 
I suppose I, I got to know him a little bit when Python was at the BBC and he was one of the people who got it on, on, on really, on, on BBC in 1969. But then much later, when I was travelling and uh, we ended up very often having books out at the same time at Christmas, so we'd, we'd, we'd meet up and we'd have jokes about uh, you know, putting each other's books on top of the other person's books in bookshops and silly things, <laughs> silly things like that. And I realised that part of the great communication, that communicator in David was his sense of humour, terrific sense of humour, at the same time allied to a very serious sense of responsibility to get right what he's saying. Not to take on too much, not to try and pretend he can do this if he can't do it. He's always been just, he's managed to just shape every programme he does and, and everything he's done very, very carefully. Uh, so they're just right. And so you, you, you don't believe him because you're, I mean, well, you are dazzled in a way, but it's not, he's not up there in a sort of white suit with music behind him, um, like Elvis or anything like that. He's there just because he can tell you about things so brilliantly. And he is so, uh, throughout his life, has been a consistent search for how the, the planet works and and the natural world he he has he has continued always to provide something new and different so that we can learn about the natural world so in, in all those things i i think he's absolutely admirable but he's so easy to get on with because he does have he does have a great sense of humor and i i mean i'll tell you a little story which sums up david he's you know he, there is an ego there because he likes to get the programs right but it's entirely the ego is centred on his work, not himself and his own behaviour. He's very, very, very loyal. If someone asks him to go somewhere, he will, he will generally try and make it. And I went to um, an event at Canada House, and uh, it was going to be given a medal. And this was about a couple of years ago. And I was asked along, and I was there, and there was the, the people who were getting together and having their drinks. And suddenly David appears, and he, he doesn't have an entourage, didn't have anyone with him. He just came in in his coat and took his coat off, said hello to everybody, um, very direct, very natural. And I said, I said to him, I took him one side, I said, David, you, I think you're brilliant that you turn up to all these things. And he said, I turned up last night, it was the wrong night. Which <laughs> <laughs> is just, just brilliant. <laughs> he not only come once, he came twice <laughs> and presumably got home again afterwards. Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, you'll fabulously um, say what's on your mind, which I love, and, and all the sort of recent stuff that you've said. And I know it was only 16 months ago that you had your heart operation. And um, may I ask you how you feel? I know it's a bit of a sort of hugely deep question, but how you feel after sort of talking and being a friend of, of David's and looking at that programme and all that, the, how passionate you feel about the planet how, and and obviously uh, facing the surgery that you faced, how do you feel about it all now? I know it's a very huge question, but how do you feel about the world right now and what we're doing to it? Yes, well, knowing David or just knowing, you know, reading about the world and what's what's happening and how fast... Species are becoming extinct and forests are being cut down and seas are being polluted. Um, it doesn't take just David to tell me that. It's in the papers almost every day and I 
my main feeling about it is, is a sense of complete frustration that people still are prepared to burn down forests and, um, you know, spill oil into the sea or, or whatever. You know, I mean, th there has been great progress, I think. But still, you know, we have uh, cruise ships and container ships going around sort of spilling oil or feeding oil into the into the ocean. We have overfishing. We have trawlers which just scrape the seabed um, until there are no fish or no marine life there at all. We have the corals that are uh, disappearing. And um, I, I suppose like, like David, but like many, many other people, Greta Thunberg, whoever it is, most right-thinking people, I hope, would really like to try and do something about it. Uh, and, but I, I realise that I can't sort of take on everything I'd like to. Um, and I think most people probably feel the same way. And what you have to do is directly take some sense of responsibility for the way you live and know about what what um, is happening about CO2 in the atmosphere. Know um, how much pollution you and your, your lifestyle might be giving out. And and moderate it. I'm not. I'm really not one of these people who say we've got to stop everything now and live out of cardboard boxes. That's unrealistic. I think we've all got to try and moderate. That would make a huge difference for a start. Um, and I think one has got to persuade people by being honest, open, natural, and and kind of, you know, there's got to be some some way of 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 enlisting people. You can't hate everybody who's who you see as a polluter. So that's not really going to get you anywhere. You've got to somehow get inside them or, or use empathy or something like that so that they understand what they're doing and will try and change their mind. But, I mean, you get someone like Donald Trump along, it's very, very difficult because he just believes, whatever you might say, that human beings are not responsible for, um, the you, you know, the, the, the growth of carbon in the atmosphere. That because he won't say that because that goes against everything he thinks about business and his business friends and all that. But I think most people uh, now, a lot of people now, um, feel that moderation is is at least one step. And I go, I mean, I go when I travel. I've always been um, amazed, and I try and make this point that the people who have little um, are the ones who are doing the least damage, the poorest people. And they're also, I mean, I don't believe everyone in the world, just they're relatively poor according uh, comparison to us, but in their own terms, they're very inventive, they're very ingenious about the solutions. They live quite happily, even though they live on a, uh, with a very, very sm much smaller income than most of us. And I think that's an important thing. We've got to learn how to be inventive and how to ingenious and how to do without stuff. We've all got too much stuff, me included. No, we all do. And it's so easy to get swallowed up in stuff. <laughs> it really is. Yes, yes. If we may, I'd like to just finish on the, the Monty Python reunion. Um, uh, because there you were, you started telling about when you were 10 and there were 12 people in the room that you were entertaining. And then suddenly you were at the O2 doing these huge shows and after all the I, I love that you said it would it took five and a half seconds after years and yes. years and years of everybody saying yeah. oh, you guys get back together then in five and a half seconds it was yes let's do it yeah what was it like being back on stage with everybody well not all of you obviously but but with with the the chaps that are still here we got together we agreed to do it in five and a half seconds then we had to put a script together 
Um, then we had to rehearse that, that material. And we had not played a lot of those sketches for 30 or 40 years. Um, so that was the first risk we were taking was, would it, would they still be funny? Could we still make them funny? And, and there were, you know, then there was a thing about we're all of us in our seventies. And, and a lot of the things that we're doing on stage are quite demand quite a, a certain degree of athleticism, even if it is smashing flowers into a vase or jumping up as the Spanish Inquisition. Um, <laughs> and the, so, you know, that wasn't imponderable. We didn't really know whether we could do that over two nights, three nights, in the end, ten nights. So I think all of us felt um, that we were happy to have got together again. There was enough that was working in rehearsal to make us feel that we, you know, we, it was worth doing. We wouldn't be shamed. We wouldn't be embarrassed to have got all these people along. We would give them a good show. But it was not until we actually broke out of the TARDIS um, uh, that began the show onto the stage and heard the reaction from that vast audience, 15,000 people, um, that we realised this was something on a totally other level than just putting together a show where we didn't get anything wrong. This was something where we had to get everything right and we had to rise up to the audience's expectation. And that was something really thrilling. The, when we forgot lines, people absolutely loved it. <laughs> as soon yes, as someone yes. got the line wrong, there'll be cheers and someone in row 174 would shout out the line or something like that. So, you know, if you dried, it didn't really matter. It was all part of the entertainment. In fact, I think audience are quite disappointed sometimes when the whole sketch went by without <laughs> somebody getting a line wrong. Um, it was a very good-natured atmosphere. And the most important thing of all, I think, this bears down on the reason why I was never very happy to do a show um, before that was that the the technical side was so good, the sound was absolutely brilliant, and the fact that we could use Graham uh, on the screen above the uh, on the stage mm. um, and make him part of the show was very very important to me because Python was always six people. We all contributed equally. And to not have one person there always felt to me that it wasn't quite Python. But to have Graham there, and he was very skillfully interwoven into the show uh, in a way which you could only do in 2014. You couldn't have done it in 2004 or 1994. I think that made a huge difference as well. It was technically brilliantly run. And of course, Eric, Eric had this wonderful idea of getting dancers in, which I thought, why Why are we doing young dancers? We're all 70s. And they've just what you needed in the breaks in between to have this terrific energy um, and these brilliant dancers. And they're not on we come <laughs> dressed as 75-year-olds and fart about. Just joyful, joyful, joyful. Um, this I always ask everybody on the podcast, I think I said earlier, that we always ask what makes you laugh. And... Every time I've met you and talking to you now, I love that you you love to laugh. <laughs> what makes you laugh, Michael? Well, I, 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 it's, it's, it's so many complicated things. It's, I mean, a good joke, well told, will make me laugh. But um, very often it's just a wonderful human absurdity, really. Um, I, I, mean, I can't think of a particular particular instance. But it's it's not something where someone's incredibly put down. 
It's usually just something where you say, well, there we go. I could have done that. We're complete idiots. Um, or, or just sort of being, uh, I mean, there were, there were moments that made me laugh when I was traveling a lot, being approached by people who um, you know, I had to try and interview and they would come back with the most extraordinary um, replies. You know, the lighthouse keeper in the north of northern north part of Norway, who um, I had to go and interview, and he's a very miserable man, because uh, he said, well, I spent six months of the year, you know, in the, on, in the lighthouse on my own, and it's dark and all that. And I thought, well, this is one of the most grim interviews I've ever done. So I said, well, I mean, <laughs> well, what do you do during the winter? To, to keep he said, we watch your program on the television. And I just cracked up, and he cracked up as well. <laughs> Um, so little moments like that that take you, I think it has to be unex, unexpected moments, really. They are the best. Uh, uh, Michael, thank you so much. And and I will not say the thing that you hate, so I'm not going to say that you're a nice person. I'm not going to say that it's a pleasure. I know you don't like any of those things. All I'm going to say is... Oh, I do, I do. Oh, you do now? Oh, you've <laughs> From changed. You. Well, I never said... I, no, no, I never said I didn't like being complimented. I'm an absolute sucker for it. It has to be the right person. Oh, I'll compliment you then. To, I won't stop. Michael, you are a joy. You make me laugh. You make me happy. You make me smile and you just make this world a better place so thank you for everything and carry on doing what you do so magnificently oh well thank you that's very nice to feel that way and that's what we all need a bit of that and thank you for um thank you for letting me sort of have my time and uh, understanding me a little bit uh, better Thank you so much for listening. On the next episode, I'll be joined by comedians Rachel Paris and Marcus Brigstock. Boy, oh boy, do they make me laugh. So I hope you're going to enjoy it. They're very funny indeed. That Gabby Roslin podcast is proudly produced by Cameo Productions. Music by Beth Macari. Please press the subscribe button and it will come straight to your phone on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.